Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMG Health podcast. This week's edition focuses on patient identification and management of axial spondyloarthritis and sciatic arthritis. This podcast was funded by an educational grant from Pfizer and the views and opinions expressed are those solely of the speakers. Speaking today, we have two experts in the field, Dr. Anthony Chan and Dr. Laura Coates. Anthony Chan is a consultant rheumatologist and associate medical director at the Royal Berkshire NHS Foundation Trust. He did his PhD in immunology at Oxford, and he is the Trust and Berkshire West ICP clinical lead for outpatient transformation. He is also a clinical lead for spondyloarthritis services in his trust, a visiting fellow of the Henley Business School and University of Reading. He was also awarded the British Society for Rheumatology and Best Practice Award for setting up the Integrated Pain Assessment and Spinal Service. And his team won the National Axial Spondyloarthritis Society Aspiring to Excellence Award. He also received the Patient Choice Award for Best Care by a Rheumatologist from NASS in the Houses of Parliament. Finally, he is a trustee and medical advisory board member of NASS, and he is a full member of ASAS and a primary investigator for clinical trials in his department. Laura Coates is an associate professor and NIHR clinician scientist whose research focuses on optimal therapeutic strategies in sciatic arthritis. Her PhD focused on the development of the minimal disease activity criteria for PSA and establishment of the TICOPA trial, the first study to show the benefit of treating to target in PSA. Her research is clinical and focused on sciatic arthritis and spondyloarthritis, including diagnosis of PSA, development of PSA-specific and validated outcome measures, and optimal treatment pathways and strategies in PSA. Finally, she is the chair of the British PSA Consortium, known as BRITPAC, and a member of the GRAPPA. Hi, Laura. Many specialists are quite familiar with recognising psoriatic arthritis, but when we often see them in clinic, they come a long way from how they first presented in the community. So why do you think it's so tricky for physicians in the community to spot psoriatic arthritis? So I agree. I think there's a big issue still in recognising psoriatic arthritis, both in primary care and also in dermatology clinics as well, even though we know that around a third of people with psoriasis will go on to get psoriatic arthritis. I think we've moved forward a lot in rheumatology in the last couple of decades in terms of early diagnosis of rheumatoid, and GPs are getting quite used to checking CRPs, looking for rheumatoid factor, CCP antibodies, and thinking about referral. But obviously, those tests just don't pick up our patients with psoriatic arthritis. And I think that heterogeneity can be difficult. So, you know, we see patients with mono or oligoarthritis with only enthesitis, which is, I think, even more difficult for people to pick up. Uh, and obviously, even when patients are under dermatology, often they won't mention joint pain to their dermatologist because they know they're there to be seen for their skin disease. So it's kind of raising awareness amongst patients that they can get arthritis so that they will then seek help if they develop arthritic symptoms and sort of raise the possibility of psoriatic arthritis. And I think there's probably a gap still in educating dermatologists and GPs 
about psoriatic arthritis and the different ways it can present. Yeah, the evidence suggests that as many as 15% of psoriasis patients in a dermatology clinic may have undiagnosed uh, psoriatic arthritis. Often it's quite difficult because they may not necessarily have swollen joints. Things like anticytis, maybe dactylitis, or even sort of spinal involvement, axial disease may be quite difficult to spot. How can we increase the awareness in dermatology, for example, to pick up psoriatic arthritis? So I think a lot of dermatology clinics are moving towards some sort of a regular assessment or integrated clinics, which I think will really help. So here in Oxford, our dermatologists use one of the screening questionnaires, the PEST screening questionnaire, on each patient with psoriasis when they come to the clinic. So they will then be proactive about referring And we work together with joint clinics, which certainly helps on the education side. And I think we should be telling patients. And I think that's part of the benefit of regular screening questionnaires. Even if you answer no to all of the questions and you have no musculoskeletal problems when you fill in that questionnaire, it means that somebody's raised the possibility that psoriatic arthritis can exist. And if you then develop joint symptoms in four months time, then you'll know that that could be related to your psoriasis. And I think then the patients will chase that up a bit more um, and get a bit more input from either their GPs or their dermatologists. So these uh, questionnaires, I think, can be very helpful uh, as a screening tool. Do you think that can be the, also applied in primary care in GP practices? Yeah. So, I mean, that was the recommendation back in 2012 from NICE was that all patients with psoriasis in primary care or secondary care should have a screening questionnaire done once a year. And they're a long way from perfect. They pick up a lot of osteoarthritis. Uh, They will result in an increased rate of referral to rheumatology. And when we've done screening studies, we've probably found around a third of the patients who were positive who actually had PSA. So, you know, they're not a silver bullet um, to solve all problems, but I think it's a good way of raising awareness and thinking about psoriatic arthritis. And our dermatologists kind of triage people. So if somebody screens positive on the questionnaire, when they have a chat to them, they have significant issues with their joints, then they'll usually refer them direct. If when they talk to them, the patient doesn't seem that bothered or is not you know, really struggling with joint pain, then they'll often just mention it to the GP instead. So you don't have to refer everybody with a score of three or more on the PEST, for example, but I think at least it makes both clinicians and patients think about Absolutely. these things. Absolutely, and it starts there, isn't it? the assess- clinical suspicion, and then that's followed up by some assessment, a clinical assessment to determine whether uh, the patient gets referred. Are there any sort of uh, predictors of how a patient with skin psoriasis may develop a psoriatic arthritis in the future? Are there any things that we could help when you know we're screening people with uh, psoriasis? Yeah, so there's been a lot of work done on this, and there's a lot of work ongoing trying to work out the best predictors of psoriatic arthritis with the potential then to monitor people more closely and even to intervene and try and prevent the development of arthritis. I think at the moment in clinic, we rely on nail changes with psoriasis. We know that people with nail involvement are more likely to get arthritis. Some studies have suggested that scalp and intergluteal cleft psoriasis may be predictors. I think there there are a lot of interest around different genetic markers, uh, but there's nothing as of yet in the blood tests that we can do that's particularly useful in in day-to-day clinic. 
but hopefully in the future as these studies progress we will be able to come up with a kind of risk calculator to work out who's at high risk of developing psoriasis. I think that will be um, very useful, both for clinical assessment and maybe some biomarkers, and as you say, some risk calculation, mm -hmm. um, and that should help reduce delays to diagnosis. PSA, Absolutely. I mean, psoriatic arthritis or PSA for short, um, we often think of it as very much peripheral type arthritis, uh, hands, feet, uh, knees, but there's also a subset, 25 to maybe 50% of PSA patients who have the axial form. And that's something that I suppose is quite hard to spot. How do you go about assessing your patients uh, in clinic for axial symptoms? So I certainly ask about back pain with all of my patients with psoriatic arthritis. And again, a bit like raising the awareness of psoriatic arthritis, it's raising the awareness that it can affect the spine because a lot of people don't consider their back pain to be part of the rest of their arthritis. And then obviously we, I think there's still a lot we don't know about axial PSA and how it fits in with axial spondyloarthritis in general. But I think we can use similar questions that we would use in the axial spondyloarthritis clinics. So about inflammatory back pain, early morning stiffness, trying to get an idea of that pattern of disease and pattern of pain to try and decide whether we should then be investigating mm. further. I think there's quite a lot of overlap uh, in this group of patients, as you say, between axial PSA and patients who have axial SPA, expo or ankylosing spondylitis. Um, how often do you test for B27 or use MRI in these patients that you see with PSA? I think my, I, I often check a B27, although a negative B27 wouldn't put me off because yeah. um, I think uh, so many of the psoriatic patients will still be B27 negative. It's mm. more than half. So I do check it, but I still sometimes ignore it if somebody has a good history. And then I think I MRI most commonly in terms of an investigation. We just can't clinically assess the spine. I think if somebody has psoriasis and inflammatory sounding back pain, then there's enough of a chance that this would be axial involvement that those patients deserve an MRI scan to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I think so. You mentioned um, early morning stiffness and the presence of inflammatory back pain, uh, which are predictors of uh, axial SPA, uh, SPA, but also I think axial uh, PSA as well. And in terms of your MRI, do you use certain sequences? Uh, how do you organize an MRI for these patients? So I typically request a whole spine MRI and our radiologists are happy to do that. I don't think, and the evidence says that you don't really need gadolinium, so uh, I don't think you need to have contrast with the MRI. We've got very clever sequences now uh, with stir sequences and similar sequences that can pick up the inflammation uh, without needing gadolinium or um, any other injectable treatments alongside the MRI. So that's the I think the quickest way, and I think it's important to think about involvement all the way up and down the spine. So typically, obviously, in AS, we think about the sacroiliac joints, but often our patients with psoriatic arthritis won't have bilateral sacroiliac joint involvement, but they may well have involvement further up the skeleton. Um, so having a good look at the cervical, thoracic and lumbar spine, I think, is important to get a, a clear picture of whether somebody's disease is related to their psoriatic arthritis because obviously that's really going to change the treatment yes, that we pick. I think, I think the the x-ray changes will take uh, some time to develop as well so a diagnosis could be missed and as you 
suggests an MRI might be able to pick up some earlier changes of uh, inflammation um, in, in the spine. And I think that's what we see in our experience with the other related condition, axial SPA or ankylosing spondylitis as well, mm-hmm. that these x-ray changes can take a long time. And hence, um, there's a newer classification of what we call non-radiographic uh, axial SPA in those patients. And I sh- think that should help with the diagnosis, earlier diagnosis as well. And do you routinely do x-rays in your clinic or do you skip straight to an MRI if somebody's got a relatively kind of short disease yeah, I think duration? The, um, x-rays are useful as baseline, but certainly not uh, something that we can use to exclude uh, axial SPA. It's useful for classification yep. if we are thinking whether the patient has radiographic, which is what we know as ankylosing spondylitis, and if it's non-radiographic. But I certainly don't routinely do them for follow-up um, because, um, firstly, mm-hmm. the radiation, and secondly, it doesn't really add uh, a lot more in terms of clinical management. It may do for research studies where you are looking for radiographic progression. But really, our practice has been changed by the access to MRI and using, as you said um, earlier, the whole spine and sacroiliac joints without gadolinium. The time in the scanner is not any much longer than, say, doing a, a, a lumbar spine MRI. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. So when you going back to your patients, I mean, both conditions, uh, PSA and axial spar, um, there's still a very long delay to diagnosis. Um, certainly in XPAR in the UK, is it one eight and a half years, and very similar in many other countries as well. What do we, you know, what what are the barriers do you think to earlier diagnosis for these related conditions? So I think that's where we need to think from a kind of GP or primary care perspective. You know, there's an awful lot of musculoskeletal disease being seen in primary care, but these kinds of patients with inflammatory arthritis, uh, inflammatory spondyloarthritis, are going to be a tiny minority of the patients that those GPs see. And certainly, I mean, we complain about how long we have to see people in clinic, but the GP appointments are a fraction of what we have when we're assessing new patients. So there's a lot of pressure in primary care. And I think a really big challenge to spot the few patients with a severe and potentially destructive inflammatory arthritis in between a lot of other patients with osteoarthritis, mechanical back pain, and lots of other issues going through. And I think there has been a lot of work in trying to think about referral strategies, possibly even more so, I think, now with the axial spondyloarthritis group as a whole, thinking about how we support primary care physicians to screen people quickly, uh, whether there's ways of linking in with for example, B27 testing with specific questionnaires, uh, using advanced physiotherapists to do assessments and think about the back pain when a GP sees a patient with symptoms. So I think there probably are better ways that we can do it, but there's still a, a large delay just in terms of that initial thought of could this be inflammatory mm. disease. Yeah, I- and I think you mentioned in the context of psoriatic arthritis, there is the PES questionnaire. Um, certainly in, in the field of uh, XPAR, detecting inflammatory back pain is quite important and there are various different criteria. But these really focus on a few important um, topics uh, or areas. Firstly, is the insidious onset of the back pain. The duration is more than um, three months and the back pain started uh, before the age of uh, 40. And this 
morning stiffness or pain that gets better with exercise, gets worse with rest, and that alternating buttock pain or night pain. I think these features would then should heighten the um, suspicion that these patients have axial spa, and then those patients uh, should be referred for assessment um, to kind of differentiate them from the mechanical group. Yeah, and obviously that that's the majority, isn't it, of these patients that are being seen are going to have mechanical back pain. But I guess particularly in those younger patients um, who have the inflammatory features that you've outlined, then obviously the chance of it being AXPAR is going to be significantly higher. And then if you think about um, screening questionnaires, B27 testing, other strategies, then hopefully we can help GPs to identify the right people without referring every patient with back pain through to rheumatology. Yeah. I think in those people, then you they work as, these questions work as a filter or screen before the B27 or the MRI uh, is requested. I think clinical assessment is, is quite important. Now, B27 is, um, is something that um, a lot of people request and talk about. It's obviously, it's a MHC class one molecule and it's uh, important in uh, antigen presentation. You mentioned before that um, in the psoriatic group, it's less than 50%. In the AS group, it's higher in 95%. Um, but do you see subsets in your clinic, the people who are B27 positive with PSA, do they present in, in a different way? Do they, for example, have more axial disease or other presentations? Yeah, so I, th- I think it is a grey area and I think they overlap in the middle. And I've had discussions with colleagues about whether somebody has psoriatic arthritis affecting their spine or whether they have AXPA or AS with psoriasis. And obviously, there's a sort of theoretical line between those two, but I don't think it's a particularly strong line. I mean, I think historically, people have been called PSA if they had more predominant peripheral disease, if they uh, didn't fit the modified New York criteria, so if they didn't develop the sacroiliac joint inflammation, uh, and obviously if they have psoriasis. But I think really, to some extent in terms of treatment, it probably doesn't matter whether you're an ankylosing spondylitis patient with psoriasis, maybe some peripheral joint involvement, maybe some enthesitis. Uh, The important thing is to treat the domains that are active. And so we should be obviously picking a treatment that will work for axial disease. And I think that's probably my biggest decision point in choosing therapy for patients with psoriatic arthritis, whether we stick with conventional DMARDs or go straight on to biologics. Um, that have efficacy yeah, in the so, spine. Yeah. So I think we can treat people regardless, mm. really. So um, certainly if they have more spinal disease, then the biologics would be more effective uh, than if they had more peripheral type symptoms. And you talk about the domains. Um, yeah, you know, how do you, do you kind of assess all the domains in all your clinics or do you kind of narrow down to one or two? What's your, how do you approach this in your clinic? So I obviously ask about back pain. I don't do kind of a full, you know, spinal mobility measures unless somebody uh, is in a trial or has quite good going uh, axial involvement. But I will always do a joint count, a quick enthesial assessment and a quick skin assessment. I think the nails we usually pick up if they're an obvious problem, they're very easy to see and often patients will, will raise that as an issue. And then moving forward, as we look after people over time, it's obviously keeping an open mind that people may not initially present with axial involvement, but may subsequently develop back pain uh, and be found to have axial involvement. So I I guess not at every visit, um, but certainly I would um, 
intermittently ask and ensure that they're not developing a new back pain um, and then don't need sort of further investigation for that. So the, uh, the B27 is reported to be as high as 90 to 95% in the axial SPA patients. Um, so I think it's also important that there could be up to 10% of people who may be HLA B27 negative and still have axial SPA. And that negativity is probably higher yep. uh, if they have the PSA form, uh, psoriatic arthritis form. The other thing is about gender, because uh, increasingly we are in certainly in axial spa, we are seeing that the ratio is equal to between men and women now uh, with the earlier diagnosis of axial SPA. And many of these uh, women who we diagnose are in fact HLEB27 negative. Um, what's your steel on gender differences in terms of presentation or in terms of B27 testing? Yeah, so as you say, as we've started looking at non-radiographic XBAR, we've seen a much more equal split. But I suspect there's still a lot of belief out there in the community that AS and axial spar is, is a disease with males. And looking back in, um, I know in some of the older studies and more recent studies, there does seem to be a longer diagnostic delay for women coming through. And obviously for those who are B27 negative, even higher. So I think it is, again, something that we need to raise awareness of. And I think, like you say, they they do just represent a slightly different group. We know that by the time you look at modified New York criteria and radiographic damage at the sacroiliac joints, as seen in ankylosing spondylitis, we know that the majority of those patients will be men. But there's a you know an equal number of women who will initially present with AXBAR. And so I think that's a really interesting group to look at how they progress over time, um, how many of them go on to develop AS, how many may settle down, the inflammation may go, um, and how we pick those up, I guess, more accurately and, and thinking about screening. So thanks. I think there are quite a few myths that we need to dispel with regards to these um, belief about that this is very much a male predominant disease. I think that's still very much in the textbooks. If you look at the textbooks, you've got um, a picture of um, a male patient who's a question mark posture. But in fact, um, with earlier diagnosis, uh, they don't look like uh, the textbooks and also that uh, they can be B27 negative. And the other thing is the um, inflammatory markers like ESR and CRP. Uh, they often not raised, only in 50% of patients are they raised. And you mentioned screening questionnaires in terms of psoriatic arthritis, and there have been some attempts to develop screening questionnaires for axial spondyloarthritis as well, haven't there, and kind of different strategies to pick that up. And I wonder if that's a way that we can try and improve um, diagnosis in general, but also particularly in those who are B27 negative or, or women presenting initially. So I just wondered if you wanted to talk through this screening questionnaire developed from the Swiss cohort. Yeah, so there was an interesting study uh, presented uh, at ACR 2020 about this uh, study where they looked at uh, how they could identify patients uh, with possible axial SPA uh, and they followed up these patients and looking at their eventual diagnosis and what was quite clear is that um, we have they had they were looking for features of chronic inflammatory back pain and the questionnaire was about the onset of the the back pain whether it was acute or insidious duration of the symptoms um, three months is what they were looking for as a cutoff early morning stiffness of more than 30 minutes 
back pain uh, starting below the age of 40 and also persistent uh, pain and this could be both uh, back or buttock pain and this was quite um, specific and if you had three items uh, of these features and the sensitivity uh, was 83 percent and specificity was 86 percent uh, and the likelihood ratio was greater than five so if any of these two or three items were met so i think in terms of keeping it simple because uh, we have to understand when we go out to primary care that they have many other questionnaires and screening questions they have to do for multiple diseases. I think something like this, which is quite simple and we could set up reminders when people see someone with back pain, that will probably go a long way to try to reduce the delays to diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. And if we can get patients doing this, um, one of the things we've been talking to different teams about, really in terms of a research setting, but I think would work well in clinic, is now nearly everybody has the NHS app partly due to COVID, <laughs> needing your COVID passport. But there's definitely opportunities to be able to kind of push questionnaires out to patients or link in with a back pain presentation and then get people to fill in those questionnaires even remotely without seeing their GP. Yes, I think uh, something like a symptom checker um, could be quite useful, which then generates the suspicion of possible PSA or axial SPA. Now, once we diagnose these patients um, with PSA or axial SPA, one of the things um, that we have to do is kind of follow them up uh, long term. And there are many other complications. Firstly, extra articular manifestations such as uveitis or inflammatory bowel disease, and also the multiple comorbidities, uh, cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease. There's a lot of things to assess. I just wonder what what is your view on this and how do you manage this in your clinic once they've been diagnosed and they've been coming up back for follow-ups? Yeah, so I guess, again, it's thinking about the domains, isn't it? And and I guess just that step beyond the main domains of disease that we think about as rheumatologists, but thinking about inflammatory bowel disease, uveitis and other issues. And obviously that's very pertinent as well when we're choosing therapy because there are you know, drugs that I would avoid in patients with inflammatory bowel disease and likewise drugs that I would preferentially choose uh, in the hope of improving uh, related conditions like uveitis and inflammatory bowel disease. So I think they're important things to touch on. I think a lot of the patient information can be really useful for that. So the kind of booklets about ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis will often mention that link with associated conditions like that. But then beyond that, and I guess this is true of all of our inflammatory arthritis patients, we're also thinking about cardiovascular risk and long-term health and really optimising all of the different systems uh, and thinking about how our medications impact on that. On that, So the idea of sort of an annual review uh, that's been the expectation in rheumatoid clinics for a long time, thinking about osteoporosis, which I've certainly seen quite significantly in some of our uh, severe AS patients. So there's, I think there's a lot to deal with. Uh, and having proformers and different ways of addressing that helps. And obviously, a, a strong link with primary care who can really link these different things in together. And I think the uh, patient support groups you mentioned, provide a good support in terms of education or information as well. And one of the things that we all try to do is to empower our patients in managing their conditions and some of these comorbidities, keeping active, doing exercise, healthy diet, healthy lifestyle, stop smoking. A lot of these things could help in the long term to reduce their cardiovascular and also metabolic risks. But one area that is 
quite important, especially more important after the pandemic is um, mental health uh, in terms of quality mm. of life and health outcomes, particularly depression and anxiety. In your annual review clinics, um, how do you how do you assess for uh, mental health uh, status? So I think if I'm honest, it's something we could probably do better. A lot of our patients who are in our cohorts do questionnaires. And so we get a good idea of how their disease is impacting on them. And I guess day to day, the most common thing that I would use is the impact of disease questionnaire. So the PSAID, which has a specific depression question, as well as quite a lot of other questions around other ways the disease impacts you. So it's a very nice holistic assessment of different impacts of the disease in a relatively short questionnaire, which makes it quite functional and feasible in clinic. The other thing that we've looked at, which has actually recently been validated in psoriasis patients, is just a two-question screening questionnaire for uh, depression, which is in all of our early arthritis clinic paperwork. So it's, it's a very quick yes, no, um, only two questions. And obviously it doesn't give you a score, but it certainly raises, I think, the patients where this is a significant issue. And I think, you know, it's true across any of our rheumatology patients, but the depression rates in our psoriatic arthritis patients are really significant. And I suspect that's partly due to the double whammy of having both the skin disease and the joint disease and really having to deal with quite a lot in terms of treatment and disease activity. Yes, um, quite a lot of things that we have to uh, consider. In our practice, we also use the hospital and anxiety depression score or the HAT mm-hmm. score because that's quite easy to complete. There's still often a dissociation between what the physician thinks is important and what the patient thinks is important. I think we're getting closer now in terms of trying to have more aligned uh, objective or goals. Um, do you think it's still an issue? Do you think, um, you know, are we getting better or do you think there is still a mismatch between uh, patient goals and physician goals? Um, I think there is still a mismatch and I think we will always have slightly different perspectives on these things because we're, you know, we're coming at it from very different angles. We're seeing obviously a mix of diseases in most cases. So we're seeing some chronic pain alongside the pain from inflammation we're seeing patients with osteoarthritis and psoriatic arthritis potentially those with gout as well but i think we are definitely improving our communication so i think we can talk about what we both want the goals to be in terms of controlling inflammation or getting back to certain activities and and i think the more we have those discussions the easier it is to become aligned And I think we have to be honest with patients where they do have multiple diseases, that sometimes it's not all the psoriatic arthritis. We had a patient in clinic today who was desperate to go on to biologics for his pain, but we don't think it's inflammatory. And actually putting him on biologics isn't going to make him any better. So it's addressing, you know, what is causing the symptoms. And that may mean that you need to increase drug therapy. It may need to mean that you need to think about physiotherapy or joint replacements or pain management. So I think we can address what the patient wants us to address. It may just not always be with an increase in disease modifying therapy. Yeah, I think I think that's going to come with um, better understanding of the condition. And as you say, a very holistic view about what is actually causing the pain or the fatigue or the uh, reduction in their function. 
and this can be inflammatory or non-inflammatory. So I think we kind of moved to the place where we will need a lot more people helping us to do this, our multidisciplinary team, that's physicians, uh, but also physiotherapists, um, psychologists, pharmacists, nurses, lots of other people, because there are so many different aspects of the condition. And also we also do combined clinics as well, because we get other specialists involved as well. So I think that, you know, there is a lot of things here that um, we can do to try to improve the outcome for our patients. How do you, you know, how do you kind of uh, look at the MDT, uh, the multidisciplinary team uh, with regards to, um, you know, overall management of your psoriatic arthritis or expa patients? So um, I think we have a really good link with our physios and occupational therapists. And we have kind of key members of the team who work with us within the orthopaedic hospital, uh, which is brilliant. I think it's taken time after moving down to Oxford, but I now have developed really good links with gastroenterology um, so that I can very quickly ask opinions or refer patients across to them. And with dermatology as well, uh, where we've had combined clinics uh, and obviously refer people and ask advice uh, in between appointments as required. I mean, I think there's still a lot more that we would ideally need. So we're looking into trying to get funding for more psychology support, which I think would really benefit these patients. We're lucky to have an amazing system for patients with chronic pain and fibromyalgia symptoms with a team of extended scope allied health professionals. Uh, but they're overwhelmed with referrals at the moment, so the the waiting list is not great. And I think that's really where we could improve things a lot if we had the money uh, in the NHS, that we focus a lot on the medications and getting the right medications to the patients, but all the rest of the team uh, and having the right support for pain relief and pain management uh, would be just as important uh, and probably doesn't get the right amount of funding. Yeah, I agree with that. I think we are similarly here in uh, in Berkshire. We are very, very fortunate that we have a community integrated pain service called IPAS, which really helps us to uh, manage some of these um, other issues we have, such as chronic pain, fatigue. While we are uh, focused on using some of our newer treatments, I think we need a combination uh, of things and how we approach these uh, conditions. Looking to the future, how do you think things will evolve with the treatments for that we have in um, firstly PSA? It's coming a quite so crowded. We... There's more, more, more treatments. <laughs> it is, yeah. yeah. It's becoming a, a crowded place to be, which obviously is is a great opportunity for us as clinicians and for our patients to try and get the best drug um, to each person. But it often raises more questions then it does solutions. So picking the right drug for the right person, we still don't know enough about how to use the drugs that we have. So I think there's a lot more research to do, but I'm hoping that in the future, we'll have access to things like precision medicine, where we can test somebody with a biopsy or with a blood sample and know that you know they their disease is likely to be responsive to a particular drug and we can then match them up much more accurately and save all of the trial and error. And I think to some extent, even clinically, we're doing that now. So we've got a little bit of evidence about drugs that do and don't work in spinal disease, drugs that do and don't work in uh, inflammatory bowel disease. We've got evidence of superiority for some mode of actions in psoriasis. 
So I think there's already a kind of personalization of therapy happening, but it could certainly be a lot more high tech uh, in terms of getting the right drugs to the right people. Absolutely. I think the clinical assessment is so important um, in terms of uh, choosing therapies. So in XPAS, the number of agents is smaller than it is in psoriatic arthritis. The number of agents in psoriasis, skin psoriasis, is even bigger. So we are seeing some differences in terms of tissue specificity or site specificity. And then if we layer on extra articular manifestations like uveitis or inflammatory bowel disease, uh, we, we come up with some algorithm of what uh, treatment uh, might be suitable for the patient, which is very much a very clinical-based uh, decision. But as you say, if there's a better way of doing this uh, through a biomarker or personalized medicine, um, that might be what we need uh, as these diseases have multiple manifestations. So do we think, um, you know, we this is something we may see in the next 10 years or 20 years where we'll get to this ideal where we can personalize the treatment in a better way than what we do now? Yeah, I think it should be. I think it's something that a number of groups are working on. We've seen studies looking, I think predominantly in RA, but looking at biopsying and trying to match treatments to biopsy results. There's early small studies using peripheral blood. So I I think it should be possible. And if we look at other conditions and other specialties like oncology, that's become completely normal. You know, you wouldn't treat most of our cancer patients without getting a biopsy and looking at whether you know that it shows particular tumor markers or whether it would be responsive to a particular drug so i think there's evidence in other spheres that it's possible uh, we need a lot more research and then obviously we need to make that cost effective and feasible for much larger volumes of patients in the clinic yeah we can certainly learn a lot from uh, other specialties as you say oncology where there is better tissue diagnosis and also uh, staging of disease uh, and then tailoring the treatment accordingly. Um, But certainly the future is bright in rheumatology, very bright in spondyloarthritis, where we were 10 years ago and where we are now. The whole landscape has changed. So what will be your sort of uh, parting remarks um, as we come towards the end of our podcast in terms of PSA? Yeah, so I I think we've come a long way. I think there's a lot of good strategies in terms of screening and trying to improve awareness in the community and with both with patients and with primary care physicians. Um, And as you say, that the future is bright in terms of the medications that we have available. We need a lot more research to help us know how to use them best. Uh, But we're in such an amazing situation to have the number of drugs that we do and the efficacy across different domains, uh, which can make this dr- this disease treatable and well manageable, and with a realistic aim of getting people back to normal. Yeah, I think we we would you know, as a community, need to get together and be very actively involved in research uh, databases, registers, in order for us to gain uh, this uh, data and information that we need. In XPAR as well, you know, we've come a long way from um, anti-inflammatories to biologics and small molecule drugs now. So I think certainly the future is very bright. And that's a good news for our patients as well, uh, that we can sort of predict in the future better outcomes for them. And I think the challenge also is diagnosing them early, as we discussed at the beginning of our podcast. Um, certainly in XPAR, it's yep. too long still. It's uh, 
hasn't really changed. And the aim is to get it to one year, which is uh, the gold standard that we are aiming for in the UK. So uh, thanks very much. I think um, if there's no other questions or comments, I think we are okay. I'd like to thank both Dr. Anthony Chan and Dr. Laura Coates for such a great conversation today on patient identification and management of axial spondyloarthritis and sciatic arthritis. To all our listeners, remember to visit our archive for plenty of great podcasts just like this one. But for now, stay safe, stay well, and we hope to have you back again on the EMG Health Podcast very soon. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.